Um, good morning. Um, for those of you who are visiting or new to Christ the King, my name is Tobias, and I'm an elder here and pastoral intern at CTK. It's just a privilege for me to open up God's Word for us again this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be taking up another passage involving the Apostle Peter. And as we've been making our way over the past couple of months through this series on the life of Peter, I've heard many of you say just how encouraging it's been. And I think that's partly because tracing his life in this fashion has an uncanny way of bringing the life of discipleship down to earth for us. You see, Peter's no super apostle, is he? He's got warts just like you and me. At times, yes, he's demonstrated uh, inspiring boldness and enthusiasm. And yet I think more often than not, the things that he's said and done have appeared almost comically impulsive, haven't they? And if we're honest, this is not unlike the way we often live our own lives. And so as we've walked with him through his many, many missteps, we've been challenged to reckon with our own frailty. And this is really good for us. After all, it's in the contrast that we see between our weakness and Jesus' unwavering strength that our need for our Savior becomes all the more evident and his tender mercies toward us appear immeasurably precious. I invite you now to open up your copy of God's Word to Matthew 26. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 31 through 42. You'll also find it printed in your order. Please give your careful attention to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. And then Jesus went with them to the place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there, go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. 
Believing them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And this is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Almighty God, we bow before you today. We are humbled and deeply grateful for your word. We are thankful for the faithfulness of our Savior. We are thank you, thankful for his example in the garden, his strength, his fortitude. So, Lord, we ask this morning that you will make us sensitive to your word, that you will help us to see our own dependence upon you alone. We ask that you will strengthen us to go out today, not in our own strength, but in yours and in the power of the Spirit. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning by telling you about a Union soldier who gained notoriety not for any impressive battlefield exploits, but for a single mistake that he made at the beginning of the war in 1861. William Scott was a young private with Vermont's 3rd Regiment, and early in his career he was stationed just south of Alexandria at Camp Lyon. And he'd been charged with guarding the chain bridge against Confederate attempts to cross the Potomac. And as part of his duty, he was regularly posted as a night watchman, which was and is a grueling job for any soldier, no less so for this young infantryman from Vermont who was unaccustomed to the heat and humidity of Virginia's summer nights. And so, early in the hours of September 1st, Exhausted from standing sentry night after night after night, William Scott was found asleep at his post and sentenced to be executed. Yet due to his otherwise exemplary conduct as a soldier, a petition was drawn up by 191 of his fellow infantrymen, which made its way up the chain of command to President Lincoln himself, who ultimately granted the young soldier a pardon. And although this was certainly a happy outcome for Private Scott, his own commander, Captain Francis Randall, feared that the president's leniency would send an unfortunate message. Listen to what he wrote in a letter recalling the event. I tremble for fear that some of our boys may yet get into trouble this way. It is hard to make them realize the fact that the responsibility of a sentry is great, awfully great in an enemy's country. Friends, we too live in an enemy's country. Our true citizenship is not here in Roanoke, Virginia, but in heaven. Indeed, as Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 2.11, we are aliens and strangers in this land. And as such, we're called to be on the alert against the fleshly lusts which wage war against our souls. 
And in this passage we're considering this morning, we hear Jesus predict the scattering and complete desertion of his disciples and the tragic denial of Peter, the rock. In his words, watch and pray, we listen to him post his three closest companions, Peter, James, and John, as sentinels in the garden. And perhaps, too, we feel the pinch of self-condemnation as we watch them fall asleep at the post. Yet, in this passage, we've also been blessed with an intimate glimpse into the agonizing yet ultimately reassuring final vigil of our Lord. So what can we learn from this passage? What does it teach us about the nature of the threat that all followers of Jesus face, not just these disciples? How does it encourage us to identify in whom or in what we have put our confidence? And how does it offer us a sure path forward as we seek to be faithful disciples until he comes back? And as we consider these questions, I, I think it's helpful for us to observe right off the bat that this passage unfolds in two distinct scenes. The first one in verses 31 through 35, which recounts a conversation between Jesus and the disciples as they make their way after observing the Lord's Supper to the Mount of Olives. And the second in verses 36 through 46, which narrates what takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane just prior to Jesus' betrayal and arrest. So let's take a look at the first scene beginning in verse 31. Here we see Jesus predict the full-scale scattering of the disciples. And he does this by drawing on the messianic prophecy found in Zechariah 13.7. For it is written, he says, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Did you catch that? He says, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But who's the I? this passage. Who's the shepherd and who are these sheep? In the context of Zechariah's prophecy, it's clear that the I is God the Father. The shepherd is his Messiah and the sheep are his people. You see, in the midst of Israel's faithlessness, the prophet Zechariah had delivered a message of hope that God would one day secure a people for himself through the substitutionary death of his shepherd. And so here, as they make their way toward the Mount of Olives and ultimately to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see Jesus identifying with his shepherds and explaining to his disciples once again that he, as the Messiah, must die and that his suffering will not represent a tragic failure of God's justice, but instead a gracious act of his divine initiative. And furthermore, that his death will lead to a time of great testing for them. But he doesn't stop there. In verse 32, continuing to draw on Zechariah's prophecy, he reassures them that he will be raised from the dead and that he will regather them to himself in Galilee. So how do the disciples respond to this? Well, it's clear from the following verses that Jesus' words do not sit well with them. And it's not hard to imagine why. After all, as Jews, their expectation was that it would be the Messiah doing the striking. And since Jesus had already identified himself as the Messiah, 
they naturally thought that he'd be the one scattering the enemies of God with his heavy blows and that they would reign with him in peace and glory as a result. You can almost hear them saying to one another, wait a minute, Jesus. We're pretty sure you've got something backwards. Didn't you mean to say that you will strike the wicked? Once again, their messianic expectations were being uncomfortably challenged. But on top of this, in speaking of the scattering of the disciples, Jesus seemed to be putting into question their loyalty to him. And in doing so, Jesus quickly elicits, as the New Testament scholar David Garland puts it, an almost competitive egotism from Peter, who boldly steps forward as usual and declares in verse 33, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Here, Peter quite literally separates himself from the rest of the disciples, as if to say, I can see how you might think these guys will desert you, Jesus. But remember who you're talking to. I'm Peter, the rock. You can count on me. But the irony is that in the midst of his self-centered protest against the future breakup of the disciples, Peter himself is already giving evidence of their fragmentation, even before Jesus' suffering has begun. And although Jesus responds to him in verse 34 with prophetic certainty, saying, truly, this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Nevertheless, Peter, now joined by the other disciples, doubles down on his declaration of faithfulness, promising in verse 35, with stupendous confidence, that he would sooner die than deny him. Friends, we need to consider carefully not only Peter's response to Jesus, but the response of all the disciples. Yes, it's Peter who here sets himself apart with an almost self-congratulatory claim of trustworthiness. The end of verse 35 makes it clear that all the disciples are still not really listening to Jesus. And this suggests that they're not at all ready to face the challenge that awaits them garden. Remember, Jesus had just recently been gloriously transfigured before the eyes of Peter, James, and John on top of the mountain when the voice of God the Father rang from heaven saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And yet here as Jesus speaks of the certainty of his death and their desertion, Instead of seeking strength from him alone to endure the coming trial, the disciples challenge his prediction and take solace in themselves, confident in their own abilities to remain faithful and strong. And it's tempting for us, perhaps, to distance ourselves from this scene and play the role of the Monday morning quarterback, shaking our heads in subtle disdain at the disciples' dullness and foolish self-confidence, Friends, if we're honest, are we not just as prone as Peter and the disciples to push back against God's leading, especially when we sense that the road he's laid out before us will be difficult, if not painful? 
And aren't we just as reticent in the midst of our own suffering and trials to accept the fact that our strength is not sufficient and that we are, in fact, utterly dependent upon the Lord? Here, as they made their way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus, as the good shepherd, knowing the weakness of his flock, was preparing his sheep to face the coming trial by calling them to put their confidence in him completely and to be willing in the midst of their weakness to say, here we are, Lord. We have nothing to offer you in and of ourselves, but we trust you. Do with us as you will. Oh, how difficult this proved for them. How difficult it is for you and me. And yet, this is precisely what Jesus calls us to do as well. Friends, in whom are you placing your confidence? Well, in light of this, let's turn our attention now to the second half of the passage, beginning in verse 36. Here the scene has changed. Jesus and his disciples are no longer on the road. They've arrived at Gethsemane, a word which means olive press. What a fitting name for the place in which this grueling scene is about to unfold. And immediately Jesus tells the disciples to stay where they are while he continues on in order to pray. And I think it's helpful for us to envision one of those low-walled olive groves, which are common in that region of Jerusalem. And so here, Jesus evidently leaves his disciples on the outside of it while he makes his way farther in. But he doesn't actually go in alone, does he? Verse 37 tells us that in the midst of his swelling sorrow, Jesus takes with him his three closest companions, Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. And I can't help recalling that touching scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when Aslan, full of sadness and loneliness, invites Susan and Lucy to walk with him with their hands placed on his mane as he makes his way toward the white witch and the stone of sacrifice. But why does Jesus take these three with him? Perhaps it's simply because they're his dearest friends, whose presence will give him comfort in his hour of need. But surely Jesus knows that they're about to prove themselves to be faithless companions repeatedly as the night wears on. And so, although I think he's truly eager for their prayer and support, I also think there's more to it than that. You see, it's these three men in particular who've made distinct claims of their undying devotion to the Lord. We've just heard Peter in verses 33 and 35 boast of his willingness to die for Jesus, even if all others fall away. And earlier in Matthew's Gospel, in chapter 20, verse 22, James and John had boldly affirmed their willingness and ability to drink the cup of death that only Jesus could drink. Indeed, each of these men has demonstrated a stubborn tendency towards uh, self-confidence. And so I think here Jesus, in his compassion, brings them along in order to cause them to face acutely their own frailty dependence upon him, and to catch a glimpse as they observe Jesus' own practice of how to face the coming crisis. 
And so after the four of them have made their way into the garden, in verses 38 and 39, we hear Jesus share with them the full extent of his suffering, saying, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. Here we're given an intimate glimpse into the anguished humanity of our Lord. The final stage for his death had now been set. And the dreadful image of the cross was horrifying to behold. Indeed, Jesus knew that on the cross, he, God's very own son, would die in a cursed death, hanging on a tree. He knew that there the sins of the world would be laid upon his unblemished shoulders. And he knew that because of his suffering, his precious disciples would be scattered and fall away. Friends, can you sense the agony of our Lord in this moment? Such a test surely would have sent you and me fleeing. Indeed, we know that the disciples will quickly scatter when the soldiers arrive to take him away. And yet, as the scene unfolds, we don't see Jesus fleeing. Instead, we see him turning to the Lord in prayer. And in doing so, he faithfully models for us and for his disciples what he had taught them earlier about how to pray in his teaching on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6. Notice here in verses 39, 42, and 44 how he separates himself from Peter, James, and John three times in order to pray, not as a public display, but in private. Notice, too, that he addresses the Lord not as if he were an uncaring and impersonal deity, but with the intimacy of a son calling him my father. And finally, notice that the content of his prayers reveals his total confidence in and submission to the Father's will. In verse 39, we hear him pray, saying, If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Friends, we know that Jesus was fully committed to his mission to save sinners and to die a sinner's death. Indeed, he just said as much in verse 31 when he had identified himself with Zechariah's stricken shepherd. And yet here, the thought of being crucified and drinking the cup set before him is horrific. And he naturally desires to avoid it. But only if the Father has provided some alternative to it. As David Garland explains here in prayer, Jesus explores the limits of his Father's purpose without trying to burst its bounds. And so evidently, having come to terms through prayer with the reality that the Father had not provided an alternative to the cross, in verse 42, we hear Jesus pray in complete obedience to his Father, your will be done. Friends, all of these things, his seclusion in prayer, his fatherly address of God Almighty, and his willing submission to the Father's will echo what he taught his disciples, indeed, what he's taught you and me about how to face trials and resist temptation through prayer. Here then, in his hour of need, we see Jesus 
faithfully living out what he'd taught. And it reminds me of what the writer of Hebrews said of Jesus in chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. And friends, the wisdom of Jesus' prayerful vigil is seen in the fact that as the scene draws to a close, he alone is prepared to meet the coming challenge. Take another look at verses 45 and 46. Sleep and take your rest later on, he says to the disciples. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Did you catch that? He says to the disciples, see, the hour is at hand. Jesus alone has been watching, and now he sees the enemy's approach. And having been strengthened for the fight through prayerful communion with his Father, he alone is ready to do battle. But the disciples are taken completely off guard at the arrival of the betrayer, betrayer, aren't they? Unlike Jesus, they're not watching. Their eyes are shut, but in sleep, not in prayer. Jesus had warned them in verse 41, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and yet they slept. Had they listened to Jesus' warning, Surely they would have had a clearer understanding of the nature of the threat they were about to face. Then perhaps they might have spent the night, like Jesus, in prayerful vigilance and communion with their heavenly Father. Remember, Jesus had just told them in verse 31 that at the height of the crisis, all of them would be scattered. Indeed, he told Peter that he would deny him three times that very night, and yet they slept confident in their own ability to withstand the trial, even to take up arms and die for Jesus, as if he needed them to die on his behalf. You see, they had not yet grasped the magnitude of the approaching danger, that in reality they were facing a spiritual threat, one aimed at stripping them of their faith in Jesus. Indeed, they did not recognize that their struggle was not as Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And because they didn't grasp this, they were unprepared to face the challenge to their faith. And so their previous bold claims of undying loyalty to Jesus proved only moments later, to be little more than empty bravado. You know, there's a scene in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress that is not unlike what we've read about this morning. Not long after he's been released from the burden of his sin, Christian meets three men lying asleep with their legs in shackles. And fearing that Satan, who goes around like a roaring lion, might come upon them and gobble them up, Christian offers to release them from their chains, but each in his own foolish way refuses. Simple says, I see no danger. 
Sloth says, yet a little more sleep. And presumption says, every tub must stand upon its own bottom. What a vivid picture of the foolishness of self-confidence and of the stubborn refusal to remain alert to the danger we face and humbly receive help. Friends, our entire passage this morning invites us to consider in whom or in what we put our confidence, especially when circumstances compel us to face our own weaknesses and limitations. And it invites us to, in the midst of the daily and incessant attacks upon our faith, whatever various shapes they take, to turn to our Heavenly Father in prayer and confess our utter dependence upon Him alone to fight on our behalf. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're asking, how can I turn to the Lord again? When push comes to shove, I don't acknowledge my dependence upon Him. I've not made a habit of turning to Him in prayer. I rely on myself. I see that I've been foolish, but in practice I've forsaken Him too many times to presume upon His grace. But you know, we've just heard Jesus tell the disciples that they would all soon fall away. And we know that they did. And we've heard him tell Peter, the rock, that before the night was through, he'd deny him three times. And we know that he did. And yet we've also heard him promise all of them, knowing that they would utterly abandon him in the midst of the crisis, and that he alone would remain faithful, that he would regather them unto himself after he'd been raised from the dead. And friends, we know that he did this as well. And if we confess our sinful waywardness and repent and humbly turn to him, he offers to restore us too. Indeed, in his second letter in chapter 2, verse 13, Timothy writes, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Friends, Jesus' strength is made perfect in our weakness. And he, as he calls us to discipleship, he calls us moment by moment to put our confidence in him alone and to remain prayerfully alert to the things that threaten our faith. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, your word is powerful. Almighty God, we ask now that you, by your word, will convict us of our waywardness and that you will cause us to turn to you once again. And we ask that you will give us a picture of the faithfulness of our Savior and that our only hope is in him. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.